Welcome back to all my darlings. Welcome to season 105. <laughs> uh, who knew reading Margaret Young would lead to these this many episodes? But here we are. So I am not officially starting the book uh, Harp Song for a Radical, The Life and Times of Eugene Victor Debs. Uh, this is the last book that... Um, Margaret Young, Young worked on. Uh, prior to this, it was uh, Miss McIntosh, My Darling, Prismatic Ground, Moderate Fable, and Angel in the Forest, which we just uh, ended. Um, let's see. I'm pretty sure I'll get this. this uh, but anyways, this was uh, an abbreviated version, one that the uh, editors worked on. She had, oh gosh, I don't know, some, you know, you know Margaret Young, some ridiculous amount of uh, pages um, dedicated to Debs. And because I'm a little slow, one thing, I was just picking this up and looking at the title. So on the book cover that's here that I have, it has a picture of uh, Debs in the middle. It has railroad factory work, farmers, uh, what's this, uh, mining, I guess, and then this other one is, I think, weaving or something, and of course only men are pictured, um, but, and then the top left is Socialist Party, uh, with some kind of seal, and the top right is a torch, uh, somebody holding a torch. And it just dawned on me um, when Angel in the Forest, at the very end, um, that I think one thing Young was trying to point out in Angel in the Forest was that the utopia, the Rapite utopia, ended in, uh, how would you call it, uh, ended in oblivion oblivion and because they were a celibate community much like the shakers so shakers as well uh the rabbi community ended in oblivion like there's there's nothing left but memory and a labyrinth that people have kept up and uh, uh some kind of outward sign but nobody is really pursuing the rabbite vision whereas the owenite i think when she uh I think what she alluded to was that the Owenite utopia, in contrast, although it did not work, was something that lived on. It lived on, it lived on for as long as uh, Owen was alive. Uh, and I believe she's claiming that it's lived on through uh, branching out of the Socialist Party. Um, and I think she puts Marx in as a socialist rather than a communist, although she does go back and forth between communism and socialism, and she it's as being interchangeable. Um, so I think that's one thing she was trying to point out. Not every utopia is equal, and some utopias do live on. I, I mean, this is my interpretation. I'm, I'm, of course, reading into it. Young's not around anymore to, to talk about it, if she even would. I think she liked just letting people have their own, come to their own conclusions of her work, about her work, um, was that, that the, the spiritual afterlife really does end in oblivion. 
Like that, that trying to attain that goal really does end. Don't even think about it. No. No. Oy, you want a Q-tip. Okay, here's a Q-tip. Here, here's a Q-tip. There, see? Go. Oh, there you go. Um, I'm sorry, I, I meant this to be an introduction, but I think it's a good segue into what's going to happen here, since we're, this is like, this is it. She goes all in on depths. Um, so that the, uh, the founding a utopia for humankind, some kind of working around, is something that it's, it's, it's something that's not set. I mean, you may always work towards it, but it's something that never, I think it's like a goal you never reach. Like you're always trying to do the best you can because, and she rightly, you know, rightly, as, from what you'll see in Young's um, Smackintosh, my darling, rightfully so, human nature doesn't allow it. I mean, it's, it's just because of our human nature. I don't think, no, that it doesn't allow it. It's because of our nature as, as human beings. That that's something you'll always have to strive for because it's never anything that could be set in stone. All you can do is influence. Anyways, yeah, just came to that. So I'm going to try and read the uh, introduction. It's four four and a half pages. We'll see how it goes. So I just wanted to post an introduction this week, and then we won't get started until next week. So introduction. Harp Song for a Radical, The Life and Times of Eugene Victor Debs is the work to which Marguerite Young dedicated the last two and a half decades of her life. So again, like Miss McIntosh, my darling, she dedicated, she dedicated decades to her work, which is so anathema to the uh, publishing world as it stands now. You don't ever work on anything for decades. You, you know, get it out as fast as possible. Um, and I guess it's a little bit easier to, to do it now with, you know, the internets. This biography of Debs is a monumental achievement, the culmination of everything Margaret Young believed in and worked for as a writer. In the tradition of Walt Whitman, she writes with the lyric vision of poetry and the sweep of history to give us a life that is also the ballad of an age and the story of a nation. In a career of nearly six decades, Margaret Young produced a small but formidable body of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry that attracted fervent readership, while she also attained legendary status as a teacher of creative writing in New York. A resident of Greenwich Village for over 40 years, she became a living representative of its heyday as a literary center. People pointed her out and greeted her on the street. She was a colorful presence, strolling nonchalantly down Beaker Street in her long crimson dresses with a gold embroidered vest, her black Polish nursemaid boots worn with pink stockings, toes peeking through, and a floor-length red woolen cape thrown over her shoulder. Over time, her face acquired a craggy, monumental quality, which she shared with her friend W.H. Auden. Like his, her expression was forceful but meditative in its intelligence. She had naturally red hair, which she always wore shoulder length, with bangs cut straight across her forehead. When her hairdresser passed away and the beauty parlor on Bleecker Street closed, Marguerite Young bought a wig of the same color as her real hair and had it cut the same way, and thus her appearance acquired the timeless quality she strove for in her work. Marguerite Young was born in Indiana in 1908, when, as she liked to say, Indianapolis was the Athens of the West. Her parents separated when, when she was three, and she and her sister made their, their home with her grandmother, who encouraged her talent. 
It was after graduating from Butler College while teaching and pursuing her graduate studies at the University of Chicago that she brought out her first volume of po poetry, Prismatic Ground, in 1937. The publication of her second volume, Moderate Fable, in 1944, coincided with her move to New York. The following year, she published her first work of nonfiction, Angel in the Forest. It is the history of two failed utopias, one a religious, celibate, millennial com community led by Father George Rapp, the other a rational sect founded on the perfectibility of man by Robert Owen, one following the other in the same village of New Harmony, Indiana. In Angel in the Forest, Marguerite Young came into her own. According to the poet Amy Clampett, she turned from writing poetry to prose because of her spirit of inclusion, wanting to stretch each line to encompass every historical fact of her subject. It was a technique she took even further, to encyclopedic dimensions, when she published her only work of fiction, Miss Macintosh, My Darling, in 1965. This massive demanding novel is an inquest to the disappearance of Miss Macintosh, an old nursemaid which takes the narrator, Vera Cartwheel, from the coast of New England to the Midwest. It betrays four archetypal characters with the double consciousness of one life lived and one unlived. Through them, the author explores the subjects that enthralled her, the misfit, the wrecked, the impossible, and the forgotten. Miss Macintosh, My Darling, caused quite a stir on publication. It was the controversial epic novel that actually took three months longer to write than Ulysses, as Marguerite announced to Joyce's sister at the Gotham Book Mart. And I met Marguerite Young in the fall of 1973. Every morning at the same time, we both had breakfast at Reichert's Coffee Shop on Sheridan Square in the village. She, in preparation for her literary work, I to get ready for the classes I was teaching at Columbia University. I would see Marguerite sitting at the counter reading the newspaper over innumerable cups of coffee. One day, when I was late for class, I passed her my New York Times as I dashed off into the subway to catch the uptown train. I learned that she read all three New York papers every morning before work. And that's how our friendship began. Subsequently, in 1974, using the text of Miss Macintosh, My Darling, I produced a year-long series of weekly readings from her book by poets, novelists, playwrights, and theater and screen actors, which were broadcast by radio station WBAI in New York and distributed nationally. Those were uh, those radio conversations were available for a long time. But I think they've since been handed over to the Brecky Breckney Library uh, at Yale um, because those links no longer work. My conversations with Marguerite started in those days and lasted throughout the rest of her life. In 1967, she started writing a biography of James Whitcomb Riley, the Hoosier poet who created Little Orphan Annie and was a drinking companion of Eugene Victor Debs. The humor and fantasy and the elegaic treatment of childhood of Riley's nostalgic homespun lyrics, she felt, recreated a whole world and revealed the unconscious psyche of the poet and his society. During this period, Marguerite was drawn to the larger social issues of the late 60s, civil rights marches in the South, the mounting protest against the war in Vietnam, and the plight of conscientious objectors. Every issue made her think of Debs. When she was asked to join a panel of women writers against the war in Vietnam, she realized that she was hearing a modern-day recapitulation of all the issues that had motivated Debs. Half a century, a century earlier, during World War I, under Wood... Talk about W's... Half a century earlier, during World War I, under Woodrow Wilson's Draconian Alien and Sedition Act, Debs had been imprisoned as a conscientious objector for protesting U.S. participation in the war. An equally powerful influence on her decision to write about Debs was those aspects of the protest manifested in the music and poetry of the counterculture. 
The flower children made a cult of nature in the American Indian and returned to 19th century dress, with women wearing long hair and long dresses and men earrings, beads, and beards. It was nostalgic yearning for a lost America. All of these cultural phenomena made Margaret Young understand that the youth of America had unconsciously returned in a fragmented way to a deeper ideological bedrock than Marxism, one predating Debs. They had gone back to the utopian ideals of the early settlers and of those mad dreamers. Fourierists and St. Simonians, who were so profoundly a part of the American spirit. One hot day, as we marched together in a rally on Hudson Street in Greenwich Village with a contingent of riders to protest the war in Vietnam, the air around us ringing with the songs and slogans of student radicals, black militants, hippies, and conscientious objectors, Marguerite told me she was writing a biography of Eugene Debs. She saw in all the young people around her a great need for information about Debs and his era to guide them through the present political conflict and chaos. For there had been a struggle and a social upheaval even greater than this in the American past. They needed to know about Debs. And looking back over her life, Marguerite felt that she had pursued the same theme in every work. As she told professors Miriam Fuchs and Ellen Friedman in an interview, I believe that all my work explores the human desire or obsession for utopia. And the structure of all my works is the search for utopias lost and rediscovered. This is true of Prismatic Ground, Moderate Fable, Angel in the Forest, and Miss Mackintosh, My Darling, and my biography of Debs. All my writing is about the recognition that there is no single reality, but the beauty of it is that you nevertheless go on, walking towards utopia, which may not exist, on a bridge which might end before you reach the other side. This underlying vision is also her definition of maturity in the artist, the essential coming to terms with human experience. As she phrased it, she also had looked into the abyss, when you examined all the illusions of life, and know that there isn't any reality, but you nevertheless go on, then you are a mature human being. You accept the idea that it is all mask and illusion that people are in disguise. You see the crumbling of reality, and then you accept it. To her, the world was imprinted with the ideas of those who passed through it. So I, sh so I show all the different colors entering into the making of the utopian quest, and one of my themes is what Oscar Wilde said, If you show me a country which has no map of utopia, even though there is no utopia anywhere, it's not a country I would ever care to live in. Marguerite used to say that in life she was like the seashore, she accepted whatever the tides brought in. People came and went, but she remained constant. She was like Prospero in his cell, sitting in a coffee shop in the village, smoking her packs of lucky strikes, and always holding her key ring in her left hand for some reason. Her conversation was mesmerizing. She ignored all interruptions unrelated to the subject at hand. Listening to her, one grew oblivious of the surrounding world. She waved her cigarette and looked at you squinting and punctuated her sentences with jabs in the ear. And when you spoke, she would pause and take a sip from her cup of black coffee before answering. Debs's father named him Eugene Victor after the French novelist Eugene Sue and the great 19th century French romantic poet and novelist Victor Hugo. Early in our friendship, I found a set of Sue's works translated into English, which I gave to Marguerite. We discussed Debs' interest in Sue, now primarily remembered for his anti-Jesuit novel, The Wandering Jew, and works such as The Mystery of Paris and Jean Chavalier. He dealt with stark social issues such as prostitution and religious revolt, which he thought had influenced young, the young Debs. But Debs's favorite novel would remain Hugo's Les Miserables, which he read and reread all his life. Marguerite, who had studied French, preferred Hugo's The Man Who Laughs. In those days, I had just completed a dissertation on the historian Louis, Duke of St. Simon, an ancestor of the utopian Claude de St. Simon. I used to bring Marguerite the latest critical works on Charles Fourier, 
and other utopian writers after the French Revolution. Okay, that's who Fourierists are. Who were the precursors of socialism? Over cups of coffee, we debated the French invasion of Mexico as opposed to American aggression, the conversion of American Indians, the parallel between the widowhood of the Empress Carlotta and Mrs. Lincoln, labor issues in the novels of Charlotte Bronte, George Eliot, and Emily Zola, the trains in Anna Karenina, Dred Scott, the Molly Maguires, and the accomplishments of Woodrow Wilson as an educator and as the founder of the League of Nations. Remarkably, even then we were discussing every aspect of the Dubs biography. In college, I had actually met Norman Thomas, Dubs' successor as head of the Socialist Party, with whom Marguerite discussed the last years of Dubs' leadership. I often felt that I had entered a long-running conversation about writing that Marguerite had begun with other people long ago, and others would pick up where I left off. Marguerite found no contradiction in writing a biography, devoting herself to historical research, after having spent 18 years on a novel. She had worked in many genres, and she believed that the same creative process applied in all of them. And she described it to me, her approach was to immerse herself in the period she was studying, reading about every detail, no matter how minute, until she made it her own. The beautiful thing is that as the research piles up, it begins to assert a life of its own. You can have the same thematic relationships to that research, the flood, the ebb, the flow of history, but the river is a dream, imagination. You have the same relation to it as you do to the con unconscious. It takes over, and you can do the same artistic writing. Her strategy in writing the Deb's biography was to use the historical figures of the times as a focus for discussing the crucial political events and thereby create a palpable sense of the cultural climate in which Deb has developed. The people are the vehicle of dreams through their actions and all their activities. There are great personalities who are phenomenal in themselves. Like Deb's, for example, or Ra William Randolph Hearst in another way, James Whitcomb Riley or John Altgeld of Illinois, one of the most beautiful people I know, Susan B. Anthony, or Clarence Darrow or Joe Hill. There are so many beautiful people who have conveyed ideas and dreams, I find that I'm fascinated by them all. For Marguerite, recovering the unknown or forgotten past was doubly illuminating. It restored a piece of our collective history and simultaneously identified the vital origins of the present. Part 1 of Harp Song, Prelude in a Golden Key, encapsulates Marguerite Young's dual objective of exploring Deb's quest for utopia, while also unlocking a vista on 19th century America. I focus on the human fallacies, she said, the great prototypes and their fallacies, and their positive aspects, because out of every dreamer something good comes. Might not be heaven on earth, might only be an eight-hour day, but these people are bigger than life. That's why they are leaders, reformers, activists. They are caught in some greater time. In her biography of Debs, Marguerite Young reveals the evolution of the American psyche, which began to take shape in the uncharted wilderness, unto which all the fears as well as the dreams of unlimited human potential were projected. The story ends with Debs in prison coming to terms with the reality of American society. For Marguerite, the values of the early settlers and their struggle for survival are the same principles that motivated the labor movement in forming unions against the unchecked powers of industrialism. Like Henry Thoreau, Debs would bring to his vision of society the values based on individual self-reliance and the survival of the collective that differentiate American socialism from its European counterpart. Yet, Marguerite affirmed her belief that history is directed by the individual. I'm interested in these tremendously big archetypal figures of whom Debs is one of the greatest, also in the pitifully human side of all the great ones, including Abraham Lincoln. Our understanding of Debs deepens as our perspective broadens as it, and as we grasp the people and forces in the nation that shaped him. 
Through the journey of William Wittling, a German visionary utopian, the author presents a bird's-eye view of the utopian settlements in the West, communities that perished were in the process of disappearing or even triumphed. At this time, the 1840s, Deb's parents traveled westward, eventually to settle in Terre Haute. Her son Eugene grew up imbued with the stories and memories of those seemingly pastoral days before the Civil War. Margaret Young's focus remains on Deb's gradual emergence as a man of heroic, visionary stature, as he comes into contact with different segments of the American people. In her view, the process began in, er in earliest childhood. When I'm telling you about Deb's childhood, for example, when he was a little boy not going to Sunday school or going to Sunday school, that was the year when things were happening in the nation. The White House, the gold rush, when the president visited Indiana and nearly drowned in a sea of mud. His father, Daniel Debs, memories of the French radicals and of people like Victor Hugo and Eugene Sue. His father's background is coming to America, the towns he passed through. His being in Cincinnati and what Cincinnati was like then, it's all important and it's all important in Debs' history. I simply build the landscape, the timescape, and there's the little boy. He happened to be the son of an extremely intellectual father who would talk to him about these things. He taught him French poetry when he was three years old. They had evenings like Henry James's family in which the children were taught by intellectuals. Adapting the te techniques she used in Miss Macintosh, Marguerite starts subjectively, deploying a series of multiple consciousnesses, but ultimately arriving at an objective record of events in contrast to a strictly linear structure. Her narrative resembles spokes radiating from a center. Her profound grasp of psychology is revealed by the character's actions, which then rever reverberate through the lives around them, thus the building momentum of the narrative is psychological as well as historical. Psychological, I would say, philosophical. What I'm doing is giving the most dramatic and I think revelatory things and linkages and passages to know exactly where it is at all times, who it is and what was said, when and by whom. I don't leave anything to speculation. I will give a portrait and then I can switch and come to another. For instance, the portrait of Eugene Field, which I have already done and am now bringing into relationship with Debs and the Socialist. But you know who Field is. When Roy Baker first met Debs, he said, he reminds me of a combination of Abraham Lincoln and Bill Nye. Well, if you don't know what Lincoln looked like according to the cartoonists of the earlier age or what Bill Nye looked like, you don't really get the comedy of the peculiar thing. Bill Nye was one of the craziest, wildest, most beautiful men who ever lived. and was Pulitzer's favorite comedian who was often with Debs. He was a rival of Commodore Vanderbilt, had a perpendicular farm built on a mountainside, straight up and down, and the house stood this way over Vanderbilt's great estate. I guess not to confuse him with Bill Nye, the science guy. <laughs> so we will find out. I don't know this Bill Nye. So vivid were the ironies and absurdities of history that Marguerite Young would burst into hearty laughter and tell them as if they were current jokes. The not-so-still center of all this is, of course, Debs himself, whose maturation process begins as he absorbs the social and professional reality around him from the vantage point of his first job when he was a teenager as locomotive fireman. Then he makes the transition to chronicler and statistician, gathering facts about the working condition on the rails, and reports them in the evening paper. From his deepening understanding of the worker's plight, a vision begins to evolve that propels him in his course from a railroad union organizer to the idealist and social reformer he becomes. In prison, he understood that labor issues were the issues of society as a whole, and he began to embrace socialism. Becoming the voice of the voiceless, he defined the rights of the working man and the dignity of labor. When Marguerite Young spoke about the writing of history, there was a blurring of distinction between creator and creation. She writes in a rich, 
imagistic style that captures the beliefs, the lore, and the language of her subject. Through it, she conveys the underlying dreams of the people and all their variations and the multiplicity of myths alive in the culture. It is marvelous that they use the same metaphors in their search for heaven on earth. The fact that all these people, no matter who they are and of which political party, whether they were opposed to utopia or not, they all had a lingua franca, which all understood and which was based upon poetry like Whitman, Melville, or Longfellow, or Lowell. They all spoke in metaphors, and Debs was one of the great lovers and users of metaphors. The Debs biography grew in scope as Marguerite pursued her research, but she saw that the same moral and social imperatives that motivated him To organize the American Railway Union and would cause him to found the Socialist Party of America and stand up to Woodrow Wilson and protest against American involvement in World War I, and consequently to run as the Socialist candidate for president from inside the Atlantic State, Atlanta State Penitentiary. Margaret Young believed that Debs and the issues he fought for were eclipsed by the Depression and the New Deal, but she felt his half-remembered chapter of American history was essential to an understanding of the current social issues, especially in a global economy. During the last decade, when Marguerite Young's health began to fail, she witnessed the downfall of that great Marxist dream in Russia, but this only increased her belief in the relevance of this biography, she told me. Like her favorite novels, Stern's Tristan Shandy and Gogol's Dead Souls, Marguerite Young's biography of Deb stands by itself, a complete creation, without having been entirely finished at the time of her death in 1995. The, the copyright date on this is 1999. She was writing the chapter on the Great Pullman Strike, or the Deb Strike. It led to his first prison sentence and would form the conclusion of this book, when she first became ill and was hospitalized. It is not clear how much more she had written, because when she was in the throes of the composition, no one was allowed in her apartment for years on end. But during her stay in the hospital, her apartment building was renovated, and the turmoil of different drafts of her enormous work became mixed together. Aww. A couple of friends helped her collate one complete draft of the manuscript, which I then photocopied and distributed to each of the friends, to be returned when she resumed working on the manuscript. In this version of the Debs biography, which Marguerite Young was preparing for publication at the time of her death, she foreshadows his founding of the Socialist Party of America and his eventual nomination as a candidate for the presidency of the recurrent depiction of the presidential campaigns at that time, a mad comical sequence of elections from Grant to Tiller to Blue Jeans Williams. Deb's imprisonment is anticipated by the unforgettably harrowing scene of Dostoevsky being led to his near execution as a furious sympathizer. F-O-U-R-I-E-R-I-S-T. The scope of the present biography is the period of American history that formed the historical Debs as we know him. Although Margaret Young never regained her health, she continued to write and edit the manuscript through her illnesses until the end of her life, and she bequeathed this work as her testament. Indeed, her portraits of Debs and his family, Heinrich Hein, Wilhelm Wittling, Brigham Young and the Mormons, Mrs. Lincoln, Susan B. Anthony, Alan Pinkerton, the Molly Maguires, Pullman, James McNeil Whistler and his mother, and Dostoevsky, name only a few, are unique in contemporary American writing. She entrusted to Victoria Wilson, a friend of Anoff, she entrusted to Victor, Victoria Wilson at Alfred A. Knopf the publication of her work, and I was enlisted to prepare the manuscript for publication. Margaret Young's papers and manuscripts are deposited with the Benecke Library at Yale. Benecke or Beinecke song. Not surprisingly, Harp Song for Radicals is a summation of her writing life, and with it she returned to her origins. As the narrator of Angel in the Forest went back to New Harmony, Margaret Young did in fact return home to Indiana. 
After several bouts of hospitalization during which her condition worsened, her, her niece, Daphne Nolene, and with her children, moved as much as they could of Marguerite Young's New York apartment to the Nolene house in Indianapolis, where they recreated her rooms down to every detail. There they nursed her until well nigh the end. This was by Charles Ruas. Um, so a little bit about Charles Ruas was born in China, was educated at Princeton University in Sorbonne, and was the recipient of both a Fulbright and a Danforth Fellowship from 1974 to 1977. He was arts director of the New York radio station WBAI, where he conducted a program interviewing writers, among them Margaret Young. Charles Ruas is an author and translator who is currently a guest professor of American literature and civilization at Stendhal University in Grenoble, France. And again, this was back in 1989. All right, there we go, and we have the chapters look shortish. But they definitely all look readable in one episode. And some are pretty short, which I don't mind compared to Marguerite, to, compared to Miss McIntosh, my darling, which can have very 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 long ones and there are let's see there's an afterward so in this particular copy we're looking at 579 pages and i believe she had over like before the the original draft was something like 800 pages but anyways that's what we will get to next week Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoy the introduction. I hope you're looking forward to it. Thank you. Bye.